Welcome to PNC C-Speak, the language of executives. I'm John Bernstein, Regional President of PNC Bank of New England, alongside my co-host, Carolyn Jones, Market President and Publisher of the Boston Business Journal. Thanks, John. It's great to be with you on PNC C-Speak. Each podcast features local executives talking about relevant and timely business topics. This knowledge sharing platform showcases leaders with forward thinking approaches that disrupt the status quo and cause us to think differently. We're here today with Muhammad Ali, CEO of International Data Group. Muhammad, welcome. Great to see you and great to have you. Thank you, Carolyn, and uh, thank you, John, for having me. Awesome. We look forward to a terrific conversation. So to get us started, maybe let's uh, help our audience get to know a little bit about you and about IDG. You know, the depth and the international reach, the company headquartered here in need of mass is fascinating. So I wonder if you can share a little bit about IDG, its products and its mission. Sure, happy to. So let me just start with uh, what IDG does. You know, as you mentioned, we've been here in the Boston area for actually a quite long time, 58 years. And some people know us for our IDC data, for our research, or more likely for our media, such as Macworld and CIO magazines. But fundamentally, we're solving two very difficult problems. First, our IDC business forecasts the future of technology industry numerically. And we are the world's leader in doing this. And then second, our foundry business unit finds and connects technology vendors with business buyers. And again, we are the world's leader in doing this. We have about 4,000 employees around the world, physically in 50 countries. We cover over 100 countries. So yes, you're right. There is, there's quite a global reach. It's fascinating, really, how the two companies coexist and probably complement each other as well. So maybe now you can share a little bit with us about yourself. Quick question is, what are three words that colleagues and others would use to describe you? Wow, only three words, huh? (laughs) (laughs) Challenge. Um, I'm going to actually do something different. I'm going to do it in one word. So I would say that if I had to pick just one word, I would hope my colleagues would think I was fair. And yes, fair is the word. So to me, that's really important, you know, to give everyone a fair shot, to reward performance in a fair way, to win in a fair way. You know, early in my career, things like being hardworking and making smart decisions were really important to me, and they still are. But, you know, as I've gotten older, I realize how important fair is. Uh, And, you know, it's not just the, the right thing to do, but colleagues and customers really value it. And I'm sure there are many things people would like to call me, good and bad, but fair would be the characteristic that's risen to the top of my list recently. I love that. In this day and age, fair, I think, is an outstanding characteristic. Would you go back a bit and also share with us a bit about your career journey and how did you wind up as CEO of IDG? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's not something... I would have ever predicted, (laughs) you know, here we are. I was born in Guyana, which is a small country next to Venezuela. And a lot of people haven't heard of it, but it is in fact there. Um, You know, I came to America when I was 11 years old. I lived in a poor community in New York City. But a few things happened that, you know, sort of put me on this trajectory. And I would say the first one 
is that I had two teachers, one in middle school, one in high school. And for some reason, you know, just out of the goodness of their heart, they took a keen interest in me. And the first teacher helped me get into this high school. And then the second teacher, you know, encouraged me and helped me along to get into college. And I eventually made it to Stanford University. And, you know, I really needed those, uh, those teachers because my parents, you know, are great people, but they weren't really familiar with the system. And I remember my immigrant mom asking me when I got into Stanford, is that a good school? Basically, <laughs> 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 yeah, mom, it's a good school. That's you awesome. Know? And, I, you know, I went on to work at IBM and HP and then served CEO Carbonite and now IDG. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I couldn't have imagined being here. But the fact that these people just went out of their way to help me was really important. And so, yeah, you know, you have to work hard and you have to do all these things and that are personal development things. But I think I'm really here because I'm the beneficiary of the fact that people gave me a chance, right? And sort of in the theme of fairness gave me an opportunity at a fair shot. And so I'm grateful for that. You had two unbelievable mentors, it sounded like, in your schooling who changed your life. In your career, are there same mentors that had pivotal moments that helped shape your leadership style and influence your success? Yeah. The one advice I'd give people is if you have a bad manager, leave. Go find a better manager. I have been lucky in that I've gotten really great managers. And they have taught me so much. They have made opportunities available to me. And I worked for Meg Whitman. I reported to her at HP. And, you know, we didn't agree on a lot of things, but she was probably one of the best mentors I've had. I learned so much from her. And, you know, I'm, I'm thankful for that every day. Mohammed, maybe share a little bit more about what working for Meg Whitman was like and what you learned from her. Yeah, thank you for asking that. So I learned a lot of things from Meg. I mean, you know, she's just incredibly experienced, smart, and knowledgeable. But if I had to put it into, say, three top items, the first thing I would say is strategy. You know, Meg early days was at Bain Consulting, and you know, she went on to Disney and and a variety of other places, eBay, et cetera. And core to how Meg managed was having a great strategic plan that was actionable and one of the things that we always talked about was you could have a great plan, but if it's not actionable, it's not a great plan. And so um, I worked very closely with her as we restructure the company. And at the heart of that was building a strategic plan that could be executed. The second thing was people again. And I saw very clearly how she treated people well and fairly. And by fairly, it didn't always mean nicely. I mean, if it didn't warrant that, it didn't warrant that, right? What she did was treated people fairly. Generally, it was nicely, and um, but mostly fairly, right? And then the third would be how open and honest she was about who she was. And you know, like I said, there were things I didn't agree with her on, but I had a lot of respect for the fact that, that she was um, very clear about where she stood. And that was a little bit different than my upbringing at IPM, Remember, you know, at IBM, it's very buttoned up and you sort of didn't really talk to journalists unless, you know, the thing was well scripted and you had a PR person with you. Whereas Meg was very different. Um, you know, she would basically uh, share with the world 
how she felt about everything. And, and that was a very different style. And some styles work for some organization and they work differently for others. And so when I got to Carbonite as CEO, I remember this was the time when the immigration ban was put in place. And I remember Maura Healy at the time as the Attorney General decided to launch a lawsuit. And she asked me to come and stand by her when she was doing that. And then at the last minute, she said, well, can you say a few words? And I thought, you know, what would Meg do? And Meg would say what's on her mind. And I did. And I was very, very vocal about it. And I think since then, you know, I have been vocal about things that I really believe and I really care about. And I have, you know, I have to look back directly to Meg as the inspiration for that. Great thoughts. Thank you for that. So, Mohammed, the last two years have impacted business and community really in so many ways and continues to do so. So maybe talk a little how those challenges might have influenced or maybe shifted how you lead and how you look at things kind of in the business and in the community long term. Yeah, I mean, it's quite a few years, Carolyn. I think, you know, you, John, everybody known it and seen it, right? A pandemic, social injustice, which you know has existed for a long time, just coming to the forefront even more so, Ukraine war. Yeah, I mean, lots and lots of business challenges. But beyond the business challenges, stress, emotional strain on our employees, our colleagues. But before I go into how that may have affected how we've um, navigated this, maybe I should give some background first. As I mentioned before, our company is 58 years old. It was founded by Pat McGovern. And Pat was an incredible guy. And he served as CEO for 50 years. And then when he died in 2014, the company really atrophied. It drifted, you know, it became a 3% grower, so barely fretting water. And then I joined in 2019, just before the pandemic, and I started rebuilding the company. And then the pandemic hit, right? And then the social injustice and the Ukraine war and all of that. But starting the pandemic, when the pandemic hit, an already struggling business really plummeted. And there were some parts of the business where the revenues went to zero. And our employees really struggled because of that, as well as everything that was going on. And our first priority was to our employees, their safety, their well-being. You know, we immediately moved to work from home. We provided support to our employees where needed across 50 countries. And I have to say, they responded in a tremendous way. You know, the, the transformation that I started in 2019, I've done a number of these transformations and they are slow and they're painful in some ways because people don't buy in. But I have to say that our employees really responded here. And whether they bought it or didn't buy in, the transformation went into overdrive and they put all their weight behind it. And within 12 months, we went from a struggling company the one that was you know, leading the market, 26% annual growth. But it wasn't just, just growth. We started outperforming our competitors quarter after quarter. I think now we're counting seven quarters, something we hadn't done for decades, actually. And I think this experience underscored that working hard and smart is not enough to lead, especially in these kinds of difficult times. Being compassionate and fair is absolutely essential to leadership. And so, yeah, I mean, it's been a tough two years and it's taught us a lot and it's changed us a lot, but it's been good to see that it's also in some ways brought us together. Mohammed, would you please go into that window of time as we come into the pandemic in the beginning of 2009, the company is struggling. 
How did you pull the vision together? How did you find the leadership strength and pillars to bring the team together as we all fractured into different parts and homes? Yeah, um, it's a great question. So, you know, in some ways it was, I was lucky to show up here in 2019. And in 2019, I traveled extensively as soon as I got here to all parts of our business. You know, I think I went to China four times in a short period of time, all over Europe. And I met people. I just like was aggressive about meeting people. And in that first year, we built the strategic plan to transform the company. But oftentimes, it's not having a great plan. It's executing that great plan, right? And that oftentimes takes a long time. And I would say that once the pandemic hit, we all of a sudden had a really burning platform. We had to do something. I was really lucky in that I had met these people. So pandemic hit and 3,000 people went to work from home and we fired up Zoom like everybody else. I think that that was the point where I realized how lucky I was to have this great leadership team because from all corners of the business, people, managers, employees, the leaders rose to the challenge. And one example I'll give you is somebody decided to start this thing called Together Thursdays. So every Thursday, all around the world, we would get together in Zoom and we would just talk. It wasn't like a business meeting. It was just a chit chat. And I remember like I belonged to a CSA, one of these farm share things, and I would get these strange vegetables. And so <laughs> I was on these one of these and I said to somebody, you know, I said, I have these strange vegetables. What do I do with it? And from Indonesia to Spain to Cairo, I got all these ideas as to how to cook these vegetables that we had gotten, right? And, you know, it's a small example of the new kind of bonding that in some ways was enabled by Zoom that, that we couldn't have done before. But I would say that I got lucky in that I met a lot of these people before the pandemic. And then our leadership team rose to the moment. And then the burning platform really pushed forward the strategic plan. You know, just to go back a little bit to my earlier question. So given all that, how do you look at things in the longer term? Like looking ahead, what does that look like? Yeah, that's a great question, right? Because for the last few years, a lot of us have just been focused on dealing with the here and now, but it's also really important to look ahead. For nearly six decades, the vision of the company has been to make the world a better place through technology. And when Pat McGovern started this company in 1964, there was no doubt in his mind that technology was a force for good, right? I mean, he just came off of the decades where, you know, it was like good life through chemistry. Like everybody believed that all the science was, there was no way this is going to be bad, right? Like all the science was ultimately going to be good for all of us. You know, it was Disney's vision. It was, you know, everybody's vision. It was Pat's as well. But today, 50 years later or 60 years later, we know that technology has delivered both tremendous good and also enabled huge risks. Like we know life expectancy is longer. Today we can get same day delivery of products. We get news on demand. But at the same time, our planet is dangerously warming. Technology is 
enable like significant threats to our democracy. So I worry about those things. And also the growing divide between rich and poor and the widening ideological polarization, which is really important because it hampers our ability to work together, find common ground, find solutions. We have harder and harder problems, right? So the question about as I look ahead, what do I see? Well, I see a lot of challenges, right? I mean, just this morning, I was driving in on NPR. They said all the models suggest that the Arctic ice will melt by 2050. You probably heard that. Oh, my goodness. Like, you know, that literally physically reshapes the world, right? Um, So lots of challenges. But, you know, I I feel like I'm also an eternal optimist. And, you know, I I hope that I am not wrong because, uh, you know, in some ways we have more tools today, technology tools and otherwise, that, you know, can be put to use for good to make huge differences. We literally have the ability today to feed every single person on this planet, right? We have the ability to uphold democracy. We have the ability to prevent global warming, but we have to act now and we have to work together. So, yeah, I mean, those are some of the things I worry about, some of the things that I look forward to. Mohammed, what else are you optimistic about? I'm optimistic about a lot of things. <laughs> um, you know, we live in just an incredible world here. There's probably not a better time to live. You know, I mentioned things like life expectancy. The fact that we live in a society where, was it 18 months? We can go from finding a new virus to having a vaccine for it. You know, 100 years ago, that pandemic would have lasted a long time, you know, killed more people as a percentage of the population. There's a lot to be optimistic about. And I also feel like we need to be realistic about that optimism. The fact that we were able to do that so quickly is also a negative thing. It also means that bad things can happen very quickly. We are living at a time where, where time is moving fast. And I think our children are going to have to move at a different pace than we moved at in order to maintain the gains that we've seen and extend those gains. So, you know, John, I am optimistic despite some of these cautionary aspects of what I'm talking about. You've talked a little bit about this, but maybe uh, this is a little bit more of a specific question. I know that the company has 10 corporate values that have been a cornerstone you know, of the business for yeah, a long yeah. time. So I wonder, um, just for purposes of really enlightenment and, and use for us to learn, share a little bit about those and how they impact how you lead and how your team leads. Yeah, it's actually one of the very, very first things we worked on when I got here. We've had 10 values for a long time. And um, one of the things that I did when we got here is as a team, we actually updated those values and we changed some of those values. And at first, uh, you know, some people were taken aback by the fact that we changed some of these values, but it it was important that we did that. I'm not going to go through all 10 of those values today, but there are four that I think I want to point out. The first of those values is to remain dedicated to our vision of making the world a better place through technology. And so what does this mean? Not only do we forecast rates of growth of things like the software and the hardware and services market, but we also now forecast their ESG impact, 
their impact on women participation in the workforce, their propensity to drive racial profiling, et cetera. Our technology publications are also read by 200 million readers. And so we have an opportunity to influence how the world uses technology. So it's no accident that this value is at the top of our list. And number two is to show respect for the dignity of each individual. And, uh, you know, this underscores my prior comment to give everyone a fair shot. Again, you know, it's no accident that this is number two, it's that important. So those in some ways are the two anchors of our company. Two others that I want to point out are also important, really important. And the next one is unleash continuous innovation to be responsive to changes in the marketplace. So we had done this many years ago and we had lost the ability to do this. And more importantly, we had lost belief that we could innovate and we needed to rebuild that ability and rebuild that belief. And now we're seeing substantial innovation. I have to say, as I meet employees, I can see that self-confidence, that belief again. And then the fourth that I'm going to talk about, it's foster an action-oriented, let's try it attitude. And this is potentially the oldest of the values because it was at the heart of what Pat McGovern did. He loved to say, let's try it, right? And in some ways, it's sort of shocking that we had lost that entrepreneurial spirit of let's try it. And we had to rebuild that. And we have now. I feel like we've regained that spirit. We see it in the numbers. We see it in the attitudes. And as John knows, and again, you know, Thank you, John, for being part of this program. But we recently won this DNY Entrepreneur of the Year Award, which is great external validation that our entrepreneurial spirit has, has returned. So those are four of the ten. It's incredible for a company with your tenure in history to revamp the leadership and the strategy with an entrepreneurial spirit the way you have. Mohammed, congratulations on that award. That was sensational. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, John. Thank you, Carolyn. But you haven't just led your company. You're also tremendously engaged in the community. What excites or moves you and what causes are you involved with? Yeah, yeah. Maybe I'll start by talking about you know, how this has been a tradition for IDG for decades, right? So we do have this long history of contributing to important causes. Pat McGovern donated $350 million to MIT for brain research. The McGovern Foundation, which uh, you know was recently started about two years ago, maybe three now, is now one of the largest foundation in Boston. And as I mentioned today, IDG, you know, we leverage our platform to drive positive change. Right? We have uh, access to 200 million readers, large tech community, and there are a variety of things that um, that we communicate as part of that. You know, more locally, recently we were one of the founding members of. Massachusetts Technology Leadership Council, Tech Compact for Social Justice. This arose out of a social sort of upheaval maybe a year ago. And uh, when we started this, I thought we'd get 10 companies pledging to take action. I think we got 80 companies in the Boston area, some of the biggest names, right? From Wayfair to BTC to the iRobot. I mean, just, just, it was really quite something. Personally, I serve on the board of GBH and Oxfam America. I talked a little bit about the importance of maintaining our democracy. One of the key things about the democracy is to have balanced content. And GBH is the largest producer of content for PBS. 
And this balanced content is something we truly need, dearly need in our country at this time. And it's a great opportunity to be part of that. I also serve on the board of Oxfam America, and Oxfam is one of the world's largest NGOs working to alleviate poverty. But I have to say, you know, I feel like uh, here at IDG, Pat set the standard, and uh, we're just we're trying to keep up with the, the legacy that he left. Well, I think you're doing a great job, and uh, I'm wholeheartedly behind you on the balanced content uh, piece. And uh, GBH is a great organization, and the need for that is more and more critical than ever. So thank you for that. You've had a lot of experience, I mean, leading, but particularly leading organizations here in the Boston community. As a leader in that space, what are some of the key issues you see as critical to our future? And how do they shape perhaps the way that you lead IDG? Yeah, no, thank you, Caroline. If we sort of anchor around Boston, which I think is quite relevant here, I think there are really three. So I would say education, income inequality, and immigration. And in some ways, these all revolve around talent. And you know, whether it's homegrown through our education system or imported through you know, Boston's and our, our nation's long history of benefiting from immigrants, you know, it's talent. With respect to education, it's really, really disappointing to see what's happening with the Boston public schools. You know, it's in it's in the news like every day now, rightfully so. It has 50,000 students, you know, 50,000, and it's failing many of these students. You know, I was one of those students 40 years ago, and the New York City public school system didn't fail me the way BPS is failing today. And so, you know, whatever it is we do here, I think the state and the mayor need to work together to fix this now, because this is Boston. 50,000 students is the next generation of Boston. And we can do a lot of other things, which we're doing, unrelated to this, but this is core to that. I'd say the next is income inequality. And this started to better education for our poor communities, and it also includes better transportation and housing. And then finally, America has always been a nation of immigrants the exception of Native Americans who were here. But immigration has been critical to the growth of the country, the economy, and Boston's actually one of the leading examples, right? From the Irish to today's Caribbean community, we actually need immigrants to grow our economy. So, you know, how does this shape my leadership? I'm not so sure it does, but I feel like it's rooted in the same concept of fairness, which I try to operate both sort of life and business by. Personally, I, I'm vocal on these issues. I've written in the globe on these topics. I personally donate to organizations that work to improve these areas. Mira is an example on immigration. We believe in what they're doing and we support them. But yeah, I mean, I think uh, we have a lot to do in Boston. And uh, again, you know, balanced content. It's great to see the globe shining a spotlight on these items because we'll all benefit if we address them. As talent recruitment and retention is top of mind for so many, what insights can you share about creating a great employee experience and culture? Mm, Yeah, great question. So I would say, you know, I would go back to where I started, right? Treating employees fairly is absolutely critical. And in Q1, we had an attrition rate of about two and a half percent which is just incredibly low. I was actually shocked by it. And, uh, you know, I have to say our managers are doing a great job. 
But some of the things that we've offered, and I think you know other companies are, are offering as, as well, the flexibility, you know, again, treating our employees with respect, equitable benefits, and purpose, right? I think people want purpose. They want to know that they're part of something meaningful. Having said that, I think I inherit a, an incredible culture here at IBG. And not that this is by itself an indicator, but you know, most technology companies have about 25, 30% women. We have 47%. This isn't just in the US. This is places like Saudi Arabia and China, right? It was part of the culture to be welcoming and to value ideas and to value performance as opposed to other things that aren't really material. And so I inherited that culture and, and I'm lucky to have inherited that. And you know, we're working hard to maintain this, this great culture. But John, those are some of the things that, you know, as I mentioned just before, that we're actively doing to, to maintain that great culture. You know, Mohammed, you mentioned Meg Whitman. You've worked for some great people. You work with some great people and, and have done so in the various places you've been. So what's some of the best advice that you've been given? And then maybe after that, follow it with what's your best advice that you might give to the next generation or the leading generation of executives? Yeah, so um, this is not going to shock you. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and you can always guess probably what I'm going to say. And, you know, like at IBM, this was just ingrained in you. But treating people with respect and dignity and treating them fairly is number one, right? I mean, in some ways, that's why it's so high on our values list. In my early years working at IBM, dignity and respect for the individual was core. It was paramount. And it came from someplace, right? It came from Tom Watson, who used to work at NCR. Uh, it, this is back when, you know, this is not the NCR of today, but the NCR of 100 years ago. And they had a very, very brutal culture. And when Tom Watson left, he decided that that was going to be the hallmark of the company that he goes to, which is dignity and respect for the individual. And so that is etched everywhere in sort of my IBM upbringing. And I think it's, uh, it's worked well for a lot of companies and it, it's worked well for me. Anything different that you might share with that executive, uh, young exec who's uh, looking ahead? Yeah. And again, we've talked about this, but I'll underscore it here. Purpose, right? I mean, whether you're young or not, everyone wants to be doing something that will be part of making a positive difference. But I think as you know, as John knows, this next generation even more so want that. So I guess the advice is make sure you have a purpose and and it would be good if it's a good purpose, right? So. And execute it with respect and dignity. I think. There you go. <laughs> And fairness, and fairness in publishing, and fairness in communication, and fairness in how you treat people. There we go. Uh, so we're going to try to be fair here. We'd like to close with some rapid fire questions. What are you currently reading or watching? Okay, so um, so I just recently finished reading Dragonflight. Anybody know what this is? No. Okay, it is a very very well known 1968 classic science fantasy book. And it's fabulous, but I just never got around to reading it. And now I am. And in terms of watching, my wife and I are watching Buffy the Vampire Slayer. You've heard of that. <laughs> oh, that's great. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So it's a 1997 you know, pop culture sensation. Once again, we were too busy to watch it 20 years ago. So 
I have to say, I'm just catching up right, on these things. That's, How that's do you good. like it? <laughs> it's great. I mean, like I, I actually sort of um, uh, didn't think I'd like it. And I mean, it, it's very entertaining. That's great. Who's a Boston leader organization that we should watch? Yeah, I think right now it's, that's Maura Healy. Um, she is a remarkable leader. And I expect when she's elected governor, a lot of these issues that, that I've talked about, whether they're Boston or beyond, I think she's going to take them seriously and uh, it'll be you know, to, our, to our benefit. Exciting to watch. What's a favorite spot in the city? Oh, John, I don't know if you know, but I used to uh, work at Carbonite, which is across the street from the Boston Common, you know, which is the nation's oldest public park. And at lunchtime, I would, I'd go for walks in the park. It is just wonderful. So lucky to have that. So yeah, the answer is Boston Common. That's a great way to spend the day for lunchtime, please. Not the whole day, but for lunch. <laughs> right, right. And what makes you laugh? Well, I recently watched this Netflix show uh, by the you know, stand-up comedian Mo Amir. He's a Muslim comedian who grew up in Texas, and uh, it's just hilarious. You know, <laughs> get a moment, watch the first 10 minutes, and I think you'll be hooked for the next 50 minutes. Right? I'll so have to check it out. I, I laughed hard through that joint. And finally, what's a wish you have for Boston? Boston is just an incredible city with incredible people. And I would wish that you know, we just continue to do what we've been doing for centuries, which is lead in making the world a better place. And we have led in so many things from you know, the telephone to the COVID vaccine. It's just an incredible place. I just ask that we do it you know, in a more equitable fashion. And fair. Yes. And fair. Absolutely. There you go. And that wraps up another episode. Thank you so much for joining us, Mohammed, and for sharing your insights. Great. Thank you, John. Mohammed, thank you so much. It was terrific. I'm John Bernstein. And I'm Carolyn Jones, and this is PNC C-Speak, the language of executives. Our guest today was Mohammed Ali, CEO of IDG. You can find C-Speak at bizjournals.com backslash Boston or on any of your favorite podcast platforms. Until next time. You've been listening to PNC C-Speak, the language of executives. This podcast and other engaging episodes can be found at bizjournals.com slash Boston. Search PNC. Subscribe at the Boston Business Journal, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. Come back soon and join us for another PNC C-Speak.